The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey everybody, and thanks for listening to Shackles, Burlap, and Lies. I'm your host, Ethan Gilson, and this week I am joined by Gareth Connor of Creative Connors out of Rhode Island, who, uh, they do some really cool stuff, so uh, let's thanks get started. Thanks for having me. Thanks yeah, for having me. absolutely. Great to I, be on uh, the podcast. It. Yeah. It is. And I should say, this is a, a, a historic moment. We're actually simulcasting because you guys have a podcast that you do that has a, a good following. And we're going to share content so that everyone can learn some stuff today. Yeah, so. that's going to be great. Yeah, we have a little podcast called Circuit and Gear that uh, we've been doing for a little while that focuses mostly on automation. So it's kind of great to cross the streams and get some rigging and automation stuff swirled in together. Absolutely. So uh, first question that I ask everybody is, uh, who are you? Yeah, that's a really good question. I ask myself that most days. Um, so I'm Gareth Connor, and I have this little company called Creative Connors. And uh, we've been in business almost 16 years now. Um, and the, the point of the business is that we do uh, scenic automation. So uh, we make, I always say we make three things. We make software. Uh, we make electronic controls and we make machinery for stage automation. So we write all the software. We have a product called SpikeMark that some folks may be familiar with. That's um, a Windows-based uh, automation software. And then we have a, a catalog of different machines. And then we have uh, our line of products that are known as stagehand controllers, which are motion controllers uh, to drive the machines. Uh, so that's what I do these days um and it's kind of a a passion project it's grown into a nice little business there's about 24 of us these days uh that work both uh or not both i guess all all in rhode island new york and california we just opened a los angeles office uh could timing couldn't be better i tell you to try to expand right. your business <laughs> yeah it's like comedy it's it's all in the timing <laughs> all the timing exactly um but that's what i do these days um before this i was actually i worked for a company uh up in the boston area called mystic scenic studios um i was a project manager there for about eight years or i was i worked there for eight years some of those times i was a project manager sometimes i was a draftsman sometimes I was an automation guy sometimes i just swept the floor like whatever the owner needed doing was kind of my gig yep. fun fun fact um Mystic uh, Scenic is about two miles away from where I'm recording right now. They're in the next town over. And, um, <laughs> oh, nice. It's always fun to go to their shop because it's it's really big. And yeah. uh, they've been, again, like yourself, they've been around for a long time. And uh, to see their growth is always impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually started there, not right out of college, but pretty it was like my second job out of college, I guess. My first job out of college is I worked for uh, the Alley Theater. Or, well, I guess I was like, I spent a summer at the Old Globe in San Diego, and then I went to the Alley Theater, spent a season at the Alley. And I loved regional theater. Like, I loved the camaraderie of it, but I hated the paycheck of it. So I decided I was going to, like, go commercial. And I was bound and determined that I was going to head to New York. And I really wanted to do automation because I thought automation was cool. But I couldn't get a job in New York doing automation uh, before I moved there. So I instead went to Boston because uh, Mystic was young enough at that point that they didn't they were just getting into automation, but didn't know enough about it to not hire me. So they did. Right. And, uh, and where, where did you started. where did you go to college and did you study theater while you were there or was it a, a hobby? Oh, yeah. Time? So I went to Ithaca College in upstate New York. Um, and I studied theater, so I, theater production. Right. And, so um, it was in your blood. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I was, uh, 
studied, I thought I was going to be a technical director because that was kind of the only real, I mean, not the only option, but that was like the, one of the major choices in college if you were going to be in, in theater tech was to be right. a technical director. And um, I thought that's what I really wanted to do, but I, it didn't take long of actually trying to do related things out in the industry before I realized that wasn't, well, it wasn't really for me. Um, it's a obviously a great job and people do a great job at it, but uh, I was really more interested in the gadgets and spending a little time, uh, I, I guess it was at the Old Globe because uh, I worked there for a couple of summers while I was in college and uh, they used to do some, or they uh, not used to, they still do very cool shows. Um, and But that was my first time getting exposed to doing automation uh, for a show and like building machines and uh, automating large effects. And I, I was, I was hooked pretty early uh, once I saw how people did it and wanted to go do it. So, one of the, the things uh, Yana and I talked about in my first episode was uh, a very, very oversimplified uh, description of what automation was. And certainly coming from the traditional rigging side of things, um, we talk about automation in for rigging sometimes as uh, taking a counterweight line set and putting a motor on that or replacing that mm. line set with a motorized system. However, as riggers, we tend to try to pull that back and say that's that's motorized rigging. Yeah. And then automation is another extension of that. And so what I paraphrased or simplified to say was that automation was the... Um, the control of motorized objects. So it could be chain hoist or for a lot of people, automation is dealing with scenic stuff. So it could be a motor that's turning the revolve or moving a set piece on and off stage. Mm -hmm. So how would you describe automation for, for those who are just tangentially on yeah. the cusp of getting into it? Yeah, no, I think that's a pretty good uh, definition of it. So, um, I like you, we, we tend to think of the, if you just stick a motor on something, you're really mechanizing it. You're not automating it, right? You're basically just taking the, the muscle part of that motion and moving it from a person to a machine. Uh, but automation, uh, requires a few more elements, uh, to work. So one of those is that you have to be able to measure the movement that the machine creates. So you need some sort of feedback sensor uh, that's going to measure the the motion. And then you need a control system that's going to interpret from the user what the ideal motion is supposed to be and then go make it happen with the machine um, while watching the feedback from that measuring sensor and adjusting the output of the control system to, to keep it on track. Um, and we often talk about closing the loop or closed loop automation or closed loop motion and automation. And that loop really is between the what the control system is sending out, what its desire is to the machine, the machine then creating some motion, and then the feedback sensor measuring that motion and sending that back to the control system. And then the control system adjusting its output to uh, get closer to what it wanted. And so that that process of sending an, an output out, seeing what the result was, and then adjusting the output um, is that control loop that we often deal with in automation. But like you said, you can kind of put do that to anything, right? So it could be a chain motor, it could be a deck winch, could be an elevator, could be a hydraulic system. Um, the, that control portion of it could really be transplanted from one machine to another um, and achieve the same result. Right. So for uh, for riggers, since that I hope yeah. is the, uh, <laughs> the people listening to this. <laughs> right. Um, how if we take a, a typical CM chain hoist and I know that you guys uh, have sure. developed some stuff with them, hence the reason I'm bringing them up. Um, What's involved with taking your standard standard Model L chain hoist 
and incorporating that information that you need or the technology to get that information what's the positioning stuff the encoding as well as that feedback and then a second question related to that is how do you deal with multiple hoists and making sure that if one has an error the other ones stop doing what they were doing right those are great questions um so the to answer the first part you know, all you need to do um, is to install an encoder uh, onto that hoist to measure the motion. Um, in practice, what we end up doing is actually installing two uh, encoders onto the hoist. So the encoder being the measuring sensor, right? So that's the thing that's going to, as you rotate it, it's going to output some electrical signal that basically takes the mechanical motion and converts that into some sort of electrical signal that we can then read on the other end and decipher and figure out how it's moving. Um, We install one encoder on the chain wheel itself so we can measure how the chain is moving. And then we install a second encoder on the motor um, so we can see how the motor is moving. Um, Because there's that clutch in the chain hoist, uh, that could potentially slip. We don't want to ever lose track of where the hook is in reality. So we want to measure the position of the chain wheel. Right. But then we, we want to measure the reason why we bother measuring the motor is really because we want to be able to generate uh, full torque at zero speed. So we want, if we, we release the brakes on the hoist and we mm-hmm. want to put two brakes on the hoist since we're lifting something. So when we li- release the two brakes, we'd want the motor to be able to hold that load steady. And part of that's for redundancy that, you know, you want to be able to hold the load with the motor. But it's a bigger, honestly, from a performance perspective, it's a bigger issue that we can generate that full torque at zero speed so that the motion is super smooth. So that you can r- release the brakes and hold it and then gently accelerate the load and get a really nice smooth looking motion out of it so in the end all you're doing is you're just taking the same old chain motor and you're sticking on two sensors so you put one encoder on the chain wheel one encoder on the back end of the motor um yep and then from a um (laughs) and now i've totally forgotten what was the second half of your question the second second question which i'll get to in a sec but i wanted to uh, oh yeah explain that um, most chain hoists, um, you have a an electric motor that uh, you, typically is three-phase, meaning it takes three hot legs of power, and that's what causes it to spin. And in most motors, they have, some people call it a clutch, some people call it an overload protector that is designed that if you lift too much load with the chain hoist, it will slip. And one of the misnomers is that it's there to stop you from lifting too much weight. The reality, what it's there for is to stop you from, if you are lifting too much weight, from burning out the motor. Um, Because if you burn out the motor, then you're kind of dead in the water and you can't do anything. Um, So that's why if you had a a hoist that was rated for a thousand kilograms and you were lifting 999 kilograms, you're right at that threshold. Um, And inertia was too much. That clutch might slip a little. It's not designed to slip that close, but if you inadvertently had a situation where the load overloaded the hoist and that clutch slipped, then your position of your chain, or as you said, the hook, to the motor would be different hence the reason why you have an encoder on either side um oh and i should probably also say that the other you know you mentioned smartly that you know you've got a three-phase motor in there and then i guess the other thing that we would i should be clear about this that beyond the sensors in the motor the other thing that we absolutely want to do if we're automating that is to drive that motor not just with wall power but to drive it with a variable frequency drive so that we would plug it into a vfd so we have variable um, speed control on that motor. Right. So by by taking the voltage and changing the voltage um, 
to the hoist, you change the speed in which the, the motor inside the hoist rotates. So that's what the VFD does. This is my limited knowledge of, uh, of right. hoist mechanics. Right. Um, yeah. And so it's, and it's actually alternating both the voltage and, and then also the frequency. So frequency, right. Yes. Um, so in your, your stock CM hoist off the shelf is, uh, going to operate at roughly, 16 feet per minute and i say roughly because um certain things will change that if you plug a hoist in at the end of 500 feet of cable from your power mm. source it's going to run slightly slower because the voltage has dropped a little or if you have it near capacity it's going to run slightly slower so right the vfd is another thing that helps you maintain uh, control of the hoist, as you said, making sure you're taking full load at the, the instant the brakes are released and that you can change its speed slowly, which relates back to the second question yeah. of... Um, how do you synchronize them, right? That, how do you synchronize them? Because, <laughs> yeah. because, again, you have a series of four hoists on a truss, and, yep. you know, let's say it's a silly truss that's 200 feet long, and I realize this example is horrible, but you have 50 feet between your hoist. So really that truss would be 150 feet, not 200 feet. Um, let's ignore the fact that there's 50 feet between the motors. And <laughs> sure. In my head, I'm thinking 12 inch <laughs> truss. Man, I just went down a rabbit hole. Uh, <laughs> so you have a long truss. Yeah. That furthest hoist, hoist number four, might be getting two, three, four volts less Right. Than the first hoist. So th that's the first thing. So that last hoist is going to travel a little slower. And then you put all the weight at that far end of the truss. Right. So now that hoist is having to work harder, which decreases its speed. So yeah. the normal thing for a rigger to do is you hang your truss and you fly it out. And as it starts moving, you stop periodically to relevel things if you you're getting significant speed difference um with right. automation and now this feedback information one of the goals because certainly if you're flying this truss in and out during a show you don't want to stop during the show and be like oh <laughs> hold on everybody stop playing the music right let's relevel the trust make sure exactly. everything's okay and we'll keep going right drum right. solo um <laughs> exactly just vamp a little bit yeah exactly. no that's that's right go ahead so yeah, now so what can, we're getting to is the coordination it's now the coordination, right? And so each of these, so each motor in that rig is all going to be plugged into its own separate uh, variable frequency drive, and that's controlling the output to the motor, right? That's like kind of the big power stage. But then you have the motion controller that's kind of sitting in front of the VFD. So if we kind of, I always think of these things as working backward from the or working forwards from the operator, right? So if you're the operator and you hit the go button, that go button is somehow going to send a signal out to the motion controllers. And then the motion controllers are in turn going to send a signal to the variable frequency drives, the variable frequency drives send a signal to the chain motors and the knee bones connected to the shin bone and all that. So the, the motion controller's job is to watch what the hoist is doing by looking at the encoder on that chain wheel and then rapidly adjust the power signal going to the variable frequency drive or the command signal going to the variable frequency drive and the variable frequency drive takes that command signal and boosts it up to big power so the idea there is that you take a motion you say i want to go from stage level to you know to the to the bottom of the beam that's my motion and i want it to run at this speed whatever that speed happens to be it could be 16 feet per minute could be 100 feet per minute anywhere in between but you the motion controller has that plan when it starts moving and it's going to then take that motion and chop it up into thousands and thousands of little steps and at each step along the way it knows where it should be right now based on like theoretical physics, like Newtonian high school level physics. Like this is where the position should be. And then it's going to read the encoder and figure out where is it really. And there's, it's never going to be right. Like, cause the world's an imperfect place to quote the right. breakfast club, right? Like there's always going to be some difference between where it is and where it should be. And that's what we call the position error. And that position error has to get snuffed out of the system 
and the motion controller is in charge of trying to reduce that position error. And it's going to then look at that position error, make do some calculations to figure out how it's supposed to solve for that position error, and then send out an adjustment. And every once you hit that go button and each hoist gets their go command, in our system at least, each motion controller is in charge of its little loop, what we call the PID loop, um, which stands for proportional integral and derivative. It is in charge of its little PID loop that's going to try to make that complete its motion accurately. And then each motion controller has a basically a cutoff window where it says, if I ever get X amount off, that's now a problem. And if it has a problem, then it, it's got a signal to the group that it has a problem, or in reality, basically it's kind of the negative of that. It's supposed to signal all the time that it's okay. And if it's not okay, right. then that shuts down the group. Um, it's it's what you would call a, a fail on type situation or in this really fail off that um, if it receives yeah. no information, it assumes that things are bad and it shuts down. So exactly. that- I walk along as the rigger and and with my big wire cutters, I go, oh, there's cables (laughs) in my way. Snip. Exactly. And now hoist one and hoist two are no longer being able to communicate (laughs) together. And the system goes, whoa, hey, what happened? And it it stops the movement. It stops everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's how we synchronize those things. And there's different, you know, I mean, that, that theory is kind of the same across any system. And then there's just differences about whether or not each each motor really has a separate motion controller or whether there's one, you know, master motion controller that has inside of it little software loops that are being checked. In our system, it's, there are actual dedicated hard, different hardware motion controllers on each hoist um, versus virtual ones. Right. I know there was a, uh, there was a product line out um, that uh, they would describe their system as a heartbeat so that each yeah. hoist was looking for the heartbeat. And if any hoist didn't see it, it would say, hey, there's yep. an issue. And then everything would shut down. Exactly. Um, which I you thought know, was... A- I think the other... Yeah, heartbeat's a great way to say it. That's often called a watchdog. You'll see that term thrown yep. around a lot as well. Yeah. And so that everybody's got to be communicating. Otherwise, it just assumes that the whole world's gone haywire. Time to shut it down. Right. Um, so again, apparently this is going to be the episode of two part questions, but sure. two questions I thought of are, um, on the lighting side of our industry a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> we created a standard to say, Hey, you have a manufacturer, a lighting console and a manufacturer B dimmer or moving light. And let's do something to make sure they can communicate together. Um, are there, first of all, are there ANSI standards for automation? And is there a standard to deal with that communication side of it? And the reason I'm asking this uh, um, was just more of a, that thought process of, I know different manufacturers have different procedures. And you alluded to different choices they make in terms of how they get uh, right feedback yeah um so really what i'm going to is if we had a very ambitious listener who said i want to learn more about this and i want to read ansi standards do they right. exist is are there those resources yeah not not really there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of talk around that and there are um f- folks that are trying to develop such standards um there aren't there is not yet a like kind of DMX equivalent for automation. Um, right now, there are a, the. I guess the problem isn't that there are no standards. There are many standards. Um, so, and it depends on again, kind of what level you're talking about. But if we take it down to just kind of the wire protocol, like if you think of you know DMX, it, it, it's just its serial level protocol. Um, there are standard industrial protocols um that many people not i mean there's not many of any of us but that that several manufacturers have built on top of so ethercat is one that you'll hear tossed around a lot that's a uh a protocol that's used 
uh, to transmit data from uh, in an automation system. Uh, Profinet and Profibus. Um, older systems might use Modbus. Uh, so, and those are all referred to as industrial field bus protocols. Um, but those are kind of like saying, you know, that the that computers, uh, you know, all talk Ethernet. Uh, it doesn't get you a web browser, right? It doesn't get you an application level protocol. Like the yes, the literal bits of data can get passed around on there, um, but how people. Um, how people use those bits with their automation software uh, varies differently uh, right. for every manufacturer. Um, a kind of funny side story. This was this is going back a few years at USITT in Salt Lake. Um, there was a presentation on industrial field bus protocols in scenic auto or in theatrical automation, and. Um, Michael Litker of ETC uh, was the head of the panel, and he asked myself and Joe Jeremy um, of Niskan to sit on the panel with him. And we had, you know, done our slides and had our presentations worked out and so on. And the night before the presentation, we all finally got together, like in real life, and went out to dinner and had some drinks and talked about what our presentation was going to look like in the morning. Um, and while we were sitting around, Michael Litker asked, he's like, yeah, it would be great to know, like, what do each of us use in our systems? Like, what what industrial field bus protocols do we all use? And I was like, oh, well, actually, we don't use an industrial field bus protocol. We build on top of Ethernet. So we have our own protocol that we um, just use um, ourselves that we came up with and developed. And Joe Jeremy was like, oh, actually, yeah, that's what we do, too. We just have our own protocol. And Michael Litker of ETC was like, well, that's funny, because we actually have our own protocol as well. So none of us had, were using any of the industrial standard <laughs> protocols that we were supposed to give this talk on. So we're like, well, this is a great group of people to talk about industrial field bus protocols, since none of us use them. So it's um, <laughs> it just kind of it goes to show just like how diverse the the field is like even even with these standard industrial protocols not everybody uses them i it seems like the the way that history is bending in our industry at least in this country is towards ethercat um as becoming a more standard uh at least field bus but building but getting to the nirvana of being able to buy a machine from one company and a controller from another company and a software package or a, you know an automation desk from yet a third company is a ways off there's not there's no nothing on the horizon that would give me hope that that's coming yeah. anytime soon I know uh, just because of my involvement with uh, ESTA in the standards writing process that the uh, Stage Machinery Working Group, which I don't say often enough, so I have to slow myself down when I say it, not to <laughs> get tongue-tied. Yeah. Um, Michael Lichter, as you had mentioned, had uh, proposed, and they did create a, what is, and I'm just, I'm looking at the website to make sure, the Common show file exchange format for entertainment industry control automation control systems dash right. stage machinery. And like a lot of ANSI standards that we create, someone will propose an idea saying, hey, it would be great if we had a standard that did this. And yeah. we all look around and go, yeah, you're right. Let's do that. So we spend the time to create a standard and we publish it and then nobody uses it. Right. Um, <laughs> Exactly. For instance, there's an ANSI standard for audio enclosures that we still maintain. None of the manufacturers use it. And it was based on, great, your company may be really good at making really nice speakers that sound great, but is your expertise on the uh, physical side of making sure they don't fall apart when you hang 20 of them together in a line array? So here's yeah. some guidance to make sure that you don't have any issues. Well, for numerous reasons, they were too far down the product development or anything. Nobody uses that standard. It's not that it's a bad standard, but a lot of people right. are, as you had said, hey, we've picked this protocol and we have this much history with it and all of our infrastructure is based on it. So it, you can't just yeah. stop and shift gears immediately. Yeah. Um, and we do have, so there's also a an ANSI standard on 
uh, automation controls that is a it's a great group of folks um joe jeremy is heading the the task group and uh etc is on it um we're on it uh tate of course is on it motion labs so a lot of manufacturers are sitting on the on the task group it is a much more modest proposal that we're trying to work towards which is really just to try to put together a, a document to guide people about what every control system should have as its bare minimum, you know, like that, so that we don't end up in situations where, you know, machines are built without limit switches or limit switches are wired normally closed or normally open instead of normally closed or that, right. uh, you know, kind of the, the base level table stakes version of what a control system is expected to have. And then the, the, driving force behind that is that so many of the machine standards from ESTA end up having to have some amount of controls language in them um, that they're A, it's getting repetitive and B, sometimes they mismatch and contradict one another. So we're hoping that we can create one standard that other standards can point to for their controls portion. But it's not right. going to be uh, it, 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 that group at least isn't producing a standard that will end the uh, conflict between, you know, various manufacturers having incompatible hardware. Right. One of the, uh, one of the simple things I think that um, I would look for from a standard. And again, this is my opinion, but I think it's the uh, dominant opinion of most people in our industry is the functionality of a dead man switch for automation. Yeah. And whether that's automation or uh, motorized rigging like uh, Clancy's system or ETC Prodigy hoist, um, it's not a it's not like a lighting cue where when you hit the go button you can walk away and it continues to execute. That with automation you have to have a person holding a switch, and so they are the the final check to make sure everything's going okay. And if they let go of that switch, everything stops. So. Yeah. In a show situation, that might be a revolve, and the actor who's supposed to get off the revolve before it starts moving hasn't moved yet. So even though the automation system has been triggered to go, the operator goes, well, they're not ready yet, and they let go of that dead man switch, um, and it, it prevents things from happening. So yeah, there's that's, some, and that's some systems that don't thing. require that. Yeah, yeah, and we fall into that camp. So like, and that's a... We have a we take the very controversial standpoint of making it optional, because um, even internally in our company we can't come to a, an agreement on it. And I I actually fall on the other side of that argument, which is like an old dying dinosaur stance. But as spending a lot of time as an automation operator, there are many times where having a dead man switch that required me to hold my hand down on a switch for a long period of time would have been. I mean, there's the inconvenience of it, but beyond inconvenience there's the impact of you know if i twitch a little bit am i going to stop this and screw up the run of the show just because you know i had to itch my nose or because i my sweaty palm fell off for a second right and so i'm, I'm of this definitely of a minority opinion but i i am not a fan of dead man switches in all situations i am also the guy that when i'm first trying out a large rig with a lot of motors on it i absolutely want the dead man switch enabled and available so that if you know something starts to go as i'm feeling tentative about the rig right you know you're lifting this 28 ton wall and you've got 14 or 18 motors on this thing and you're just you know a little puckered sitting there in the hot seat as the automation guy as everyone's watching the multi-million dollar piece of equipment and you're trying to make sure nothing gets ripped apart. I love the idea that I can just lift my hands and everything stops. But once I'm into the run of a show and like you're doing it night after night after night after night, I have no intention of walking away from the automation desk, but I also really don't want like a twitch on my hand to screw up the big musical number. So it's a, right. and I, and it's definitely a minority opinion. So I, I totally understand other people's thoughts on it. But there's, that, there's, valid arguments on both sides, on both of it sides. in terms of, yeah. of needs and and often people um will ask my opinion about uh motorized rigging and yeah. a lot of the manufacturers 
to sell product talked about enhanced safety that, you know, automated or motorized rigging is safer because of X, Y, and Z. And I'll remind people, it's still a tool. And a lot of this comes down to the operator and the operator being properly trained and then staying focused. So yeah, the, the counter argument to the dead man switch is, well, if the operator's trained and they're looking for things, there's there's still a, an ease stop. There's still a way to stop action if um, right it's needed to do so. It's it's you know, but the I difference think the, in philosophy is pretty small. Yeah, and I think you're of, absolutely yeah. right. It like comes down to the training and the professionalism of the operator. Because on the flip side, if you have a system going into a you know a high school or something where there might be students operating the system and you they aren't really treating they're not yet educated on the respect that the system deserves that it's very likely that they could like hit the button i mean you we get these tech support calls all the time <laughs> where people are like i want i got to be able to hit this go button and then run downstairs to like load somebody onto the lift you're like no 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 that <laughs> that yeah. absolutely can't be the plan right like you have to be sitting there watching the system monitoring the status all the time that anything is moving you cannot if you can't be in reach of an emergency stop button you have to it must be depressed that's our little like guidance we always give new automation operators like if you can't hit that e-stop button before you walk away from it you have to press it right it has to always the system has to be off unless you're really there ready to to monitor it because it is like holding a loaded gun on stage like you have a lot of horsepower at the right your tips Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question that, uh, I thought of, um, what do you say to people who say, Hey, I want to use DMX for doing some hoist control. (laughs) That is, (laughs) that's a hot button issue. Yeah. That, um, I say that's a terrible idea, right? DMX is the wrong protocol, um, to be doing automation, at all. Um, it doesn't have the proper feedback that you'd want to see in a, a normal automation system. So you can't get the information back and really close that loop like you'd want. Um, there's, you know, there's no system that I am aware of that runs on DMX that has proper emergency stop systems built into it. Um, and you really don't want to be running your automation off your lighting co- console. They are kind of, as you alluded to, earlier when we were talking about dead man switches, right? There's a different level of respect that both of those disciplines uh, demand. And, you know, you hit a lighting cue. If it happens to also trigger a bunch of rigging, it's a really different set of circumstances and worries that should be in your head than the lights coming on. Um, So, yeah, no, it's, I think the, the better answer there is that what, what is it you're trying to get done? Right. Like, are you just trying to synchronize those two things together? Because just about every automation system can um, trigger lights out of it or get triggers into it with some sort of enable from the automation operator. So that if you're just looking to make sure that when, you know, when the curtain comes down, the lights go on or as the curtain hits a certain point, the lights come up or when the video wall tracks on stage that we trigger this. Uh, lighting sequence, like all of that can still happen by having the systems talk to each other, but let the automation system drive the automation and let the lighting system drive right. the lighting. Don't don't ask one system to do everything exceptionally well. Have right. them focused on one thing and, and do those things very well and then communicate between them so that you're getting the best of each system. Exactly. Because they're all running on a network, right? So we can pass messages back and forth between automation and lighting and automation and projection and automation and sound. And, you know, all that network communication between us can all happen. It just leave it to that system to control its domain. Exactly. So one of the questions that I was asked in another episode was uh, if there were any resources out there for people who wanted to learn more about automation outside of the academic uh, universe to say those who are 
years past yeah. going to college or that's not an option because there are certainly some good programs out there that have incorporated automation into their curriculum. Right. But what about the rest of us who are, you know, <laughs> hey, right. I want to learn more about this automation stuff. Um, right. Oh, yeah, that's great. I mean, I think, you know, um, I'll shamelessly plug one thing there, which is uh, I wrote a book actually called The Scenic Automation Handbook, which I like to think is a pretty good resource uh, for folks who are kind of who like books. Um, I think that's a, a great way to, to learn. Also, the the folks that founded um, Stage Technologies, which is now part of Tate, wrote a book years ago. Um, so Mark Hasty, uh, John Hasty, rather, and Mark Ager uh, wrote a book on scenic automation, which is also very good and another one to check out. Um, and there was a new performer flying book that I just recently got from one of the guys at Tate um that wrote it um, um oh this is horrible because i went to college well we went to the same college oh yeah um uh his face is right in front of me i'm gonna have <laughs> to edit this out later jim um, shumway yes thank you yeah jim shumway um dropped a book uh, maybe four months ago beginning of the year end of of 2019 yeah about uh automation in, in performer flying. So yeah. So um, there are a few really good looking books out there right now that I would say that's a, that's a great way to um, learn it outside of school. All of those I think are written from an, not as textbooks, but more as kind of uh, professional handbooks. Um, although you could certainly use them as a student as well, but they're not, uh, they're not just meant for the university atmosphere. Um from the creative Connors side too, we also are, if you're interested in like taking a poke around the software side of it, um, our spike mark software is a free download, uh, which you can just grab and play around with. It has built into it like a simulation, uh, module so that you can set up a stage and have like 3d views of the, well, 3d views of a very abstract version of your set all of our stuff in our 3d view just look like blocks and discs but you can plop them on a virtual stage and then cue them to move around and all that works with some of that integration stuff we were talking about earlier so you can tie that into right. q lab and watch out and stuff like that um those are all good things uh yeah. Good options, I, I, think. I, I was being a good host and doing my show research and actually uh, spent a lot of time watching some of your YouTube channel, Oh yeah, um, which I thought had some really uh, good videos about um, some of your product, but also the, the underlying philosophy of how something happens and some explanation of how these things work and um, such. So, um, and there's nice. one, there's one there about the CM hoist and getting control of that. So taking a rectangular truss and being able to have that fly in and out and pitch and roll yeah. and some cool stuff, because I think every single rigger in the world has done an event where they, they took four hoists on a, you know, 20 foot by 20 foot box truss yeah. and they had their pendant and they said, all right, we're going to do some fun. We're going to tilt it at 45 degrees. And you right. take two hoists and go, go. And you watch and you're like, there you go. And then, yeah, that's about 45 degrees and you stop. So right. um, it's cool to see the 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 next step in that and how to do it appropriately. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I think those are all some good resources. And then also like at USITT, they, um, I know Tate often runs uh, navigator training um, for their system, which looks pretty good. And yep. um, and then USITT will occasionally run um, some special classes as well. We've hosted a few of them um, on automation, and I'm sure other companies have done similarly. Uh, and those tend to be, I mean, obviously it's a company doing it. And so there is a bit of a, uh, kind of a soft sales pitch aspect to it because you're going to see it all in our equipment. Right. But everyone's usually pretty good also about trying to, um, you know, stay somewhat agnostic and show you yeah, the theory I, too. I I always joke with people about and uh, when I was breaking into the business early in mid nineties, moving lights were the big new technology. That was what was driving the industry and. Uh, in the mid '80s, Very Light had developed the VL1. They used them on the Genesis tours, and it, they had that very unique look. 
And then in the 90s, you had High End and Martin and Clay Packy were developing newer fixtures and people would fall into these camps. I'm a Martin moving light person. I'm a high end. I'm a very light person. And everything yeah. else was junk. Um, and what I learned to take away from that was they're all tools. And some some tools are are have better features for the application. So not every hammer is the right hammer. I'm not going to use a eight pound sledgehammer to drive a finished nail into really nice plaster. Not <laughs> right. that you would use a finished nail in plaster, but go with it. People. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Nor am I going to use a, you know, small little jeweler's hammer to drive a landscaping spike into the ground. Um, tools have applications. So different manufacturers are going to have different products that maybe suit your needs. Um, and I, I think if you're a professional, providing a service to a client, then what you should be doing is getting the client the best solution for what their needs are. Right. Um, and then work with the companies that recognize that, that uh, in my professional relationships, I work with a lot of different manufacturers and they all understand, hey, yes, we'd all like to sell more stuff so that we make more money so we can live the lifestyles we want to live. But um, I choose to work with companies that understand that, hey, sometimes, you know, our product isn't the best solution for that problem. Great. You know, right. Next next one, it will be. So, yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's a lot of options out there. So Definitely. are there any, um, I got to decide which one I'll ask first. <laughs> any projects that you have worked on recently that you can talk about, because I've mentioned before, <laughs> recognize <laughs> that sometimes there are projects <laughs> you can't talk about, but, um, any projects that you've done recently that you're like, well, this was just a really fun one to do or had unique challenges to it that you, uh, really, uh, reveled in your solution to that challenge? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that, you know, it's, they all start to look like motors at some point, but the, the, we have had a couple of uh, fun ones in the past year that um, I can't mention, mention names on, but we can at least describe what the effects were. Um, one of them was a, um, was a giant LED wall, which of course, in and of itself doesn't sound all that exciting. You know, it's like just one more giant LED wall. But it was um, this massively heavy uh, 20, uh, 20 something tons uh, worth of LED. Um, and the thing it had to um, had to keep very uh, precise matched uh trim across all the motors just because um it was honestly the automation was only used as a setup tool to keep the alignment um between the panels because like they would you know bring the truss in start latching on leds um and then go up a, go up a row latch on another set go up a row right go up a row etc uh but it was like a, it was the finest le finest pitch led wall uh literally in the world um and they had to keep a to reduce the amount of time that the video guys had to tweak the LED wall, they really wanted to keep a very precise trim on it so that it didn't shift the alignment at all. Um, There's also a, an inherent flaw when you get really high resolution LED walls, which means you're reducing the distance between the LEDs, is that you're removing structure from between the LEDs, which means they can be more uh, brittle, to use the term. Yeah. So you add all those things in together. You can't just yeah. throw it together and hit it with a hammer. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. And so it was a, it, it was just, it was one of those things where it was just the, the load was so massive. The thing was so big and the tolerances so, were so tight that to see all those motors pulling together and keeping this very precise trim throughout the move was just really awesome. You know, and I, I remember talking with one of the, I was out there for the installation and talking with one of the technicians that we brought uh, to help with the install um, and saying like, you know, I mean, it's kind of crazy to me that you know, this thing that I started in my basement in like 2000, like that was when I started developing the software and the controls and stuff. I never would have guessed that we would be here now, right? Like that we would be doing this for this super high end client, very, you know, 
immense immensely important to them what this move uh required and it was just a a great moment as not only as a technician but also as a business owner to be like wow this is pretty cool like <laughs> out of a, yeah. a kooky idea i had years and years ago like we're now here and it's kind of awesome uh that we're able to do it because definitely that first version of our system wouldn't have been able to do this <laughs> you know like yep. so it's it's cool that uh that we've grown and and been able to do it um another one that we did th this past summer that which was really fun was we had um another client with very um exacting tastes that wanted to have a fully redundant system of that had um, a couple of linked elevators and sunroof trap doors for a product launch um and what was what was a interesting to try and solve on that was that we often think of like redundancy and fail safeness as being employed to make sure that everything can stop if something goes wrong right like if something goes haywire we've got enough backup in the system that we can lock brakes and hold the load we're not going to drop anything um, and they certainly wanted that too but their whole point was like we should be able to take a blowtorch to any piece of equipment in the system and it will still finish the queue right so you could lose a motor completely you could lose a controller completely you could lose any of these things completely and this thing will still get up on stage on time uh without hesitation right and so every machine had to have double motors built onto it um and it was very tricky to figure out well it, it was so tricky to figure out how to how we would do the electrical brakes that we ended up not doing electrical brakes we ended up not doing electromechanical brakes, but doing purely, purely mechanical brakes on them okay. um, instead. So they were like drive-through brakes, right? So you, yep, they, yeah, um, and kind of just bending your our way of thinking about redundancy and um, and fail safeness, <laughs> as it were. We, I, we called it fail to completion, <laughs> right? I I will I'll mention when I'm doing trainings that. Uh, I think for the most part, people think of redundancy as meaning multiple of something. So, hey, you have to have a redundant backup to your chain hoist. That means you have to have an, another lifting device or a safety or something like that. Um, and that quite often you can have redundancy in your design factor. Um, right. And, and design factor Again, we apply usually in the physical world, but you can have a design factor in software. You can have tolerances that allow you to deal with reasonably predictable variations in performance. So, you know, and, and we know this is true because a lot of times in industrial lifting, a crane is lifting and there's one crane. You're lifting right. a million right. tons with one crane. And if one that crane. one crane yeah. fails... Right. Watch the YouTube video. Um, <laughs> right. So it, it is kind of an interesting thing because we we get so used to the norm of this is what redundancy is that you get to a challenge and you're like, OK, and you you yeah walk in with that preconceived notion versus saying, wait, what if we just wait. turn it upside down on and, and <laughs> look at it differently? Hey, look, there's yeah. a beautiful solution there. So. Right. Right. Um. One of the questions I'll ask Riggers, and I'm going to shift it a little for you, is, um, and again, we're not looking at uh, what, or how I will ask the question is, what's the worst automation situation you've walked into or the most significant challenge that you were able to resolve? And the reason I ask that question is because what I'm not looking for is, hey, what was the worst automation where Spider-Man fell off the front of the stage? <laughs> Someone got hurt. No, what we're looking for is something that made you go, wow, that's that's really bad. We need to fix that now. And and then we're able to do so. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I've had, yeah, there's a, there, I don't know that I'm going to be able to pull out the absolute pinnacle one, but one of the ones that springs to mind and I, if I think of another one while I'm talking about this, I'll, I'll double up on it. But the, um, and the, <laughs> this is probably not a great one in the sense that like the, the answer was, was simpler than it, than it should have been in the, but anyway, um, this was years ago. 
Um, it was actually up in Boston. Um, they, uh, the Boston Ballet had a new um, Nutcracker set um, that had just been built for them and they were installing it. Um, and the, um, the growing tree uh, was supposed to, um, I don't know what the original plan was, honest to God. I mean, I got called in to, at the point when nothing was working, so I'm not sure how it was supposed to work, but what, what was on stage when, when I got there was, you know, a very, very heavy tree, basically of a, like a three stage telescoping tree that they mm -hmm. could not lift, right. That it was, um, basically too, um, I don't know, it wasn't like so much that it was, it was too heavy. It was just that they couldn't figure out how to, uh, to put motors on it or do anything with it. Like it was just that they, the thing was a big lump on stage. Um, and what they had called for was they wanted to get, um, a bunch of, of, uh, programmable chain hoists, like right away to, to move this thing since they couldn't move it on the, um, Arbor. Um, and what we ended up, this was back before creative Connors even had chain hoists. And this was in a situation where like they, you know, this was loading. Like, so they were heading into tech right. like, within a day or two. Right. And so you're like, tr so I called around to some of the other automation companies on the East coast um, and show motion um, said that they probably could get us um, some chain motors up there, but they also had, and it, we, had, <laughs> we were just local. So, which is why we got the phone call to come in and take a look at this yep. thing, but none of it was our gear. Right. So like there was some PRG stuff on there that they weren't responsible for the tree aspect that had come from uh, the scene shop in Canada. Um, but so you're like, well, I don't know, is that really the, is that a great call though? We're going to like bring yet another automation system in here and do this thing uh, with a, with a bunch of high speed chain motors. Um, and what we instead, you know, taking a step back is like, well, you know, what if instead we just put a, a dumb chain motor inside the tree, right? And so we just have a, we basically counterweight everything for the full load of the tree. Um, cause this was one of the things that was stumping them at the point was like, you know, when the, when the whole thing is collapsed on the ground, it's got a different weight to it than when the whole thing is extended and hanging Correct. from the pipe. Yep. Right? If, it, if it was three segments, you lift the first segment, let's say that weighed 500 pounds. You, if you're weighted for 500 pounds, you're fine. But when the second segment starts to move, you're adding another 500 pounds. Your system's out of weight. Exactly. Exactly. And so and that. And that particular venue is a double purchase system, which means you don't have 500 pounds on the arbor. You have a thousand pounds on the arbor. Right. And so what I said, what I said was instead of doing it that way, where we're, we're having a changing load on it, if we put a chain hoist inside of the tree and basically sucked the tree up together, like, so you put, you know, hang the, the motor, the motor at the top of the tree. Right. And pick the bottom of the tree and then we we are controlling how much the ex, the the tree expands and contracts with one chain hoist and then we can counterweight the entire arbor for the entire load of the tree and that way when we want the tree to go like just leave the rope lock off and then let one chain motor out and as it goes out that will the the counterweight will just naturally come down right as the goes out right and and it, that was, you know, it's not a great, I guess it's not a great example of a, a good automation solution because what I did was took the automation out of it. But the, 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 it was a good example of like sometimes just thinking a little sideways gets you to where you really need to go. Because at the end of the day, we don't want to just do automation. We want to put a show up, right? Right. So how do we get from whatever's in our way right now to getting the show on? going on stage is a good thing to just kind of keep in mind because sometimes the, the simpler solution is the is the right solution yep good good engineering solution bad sales or missed sales opportunity <laughs> exactly <laughs> story of my life yeah exactly, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> anybody who owns a business realizes that like, oh, man. hindsight's 2020 with sales um yeah yep so i have a couple of a uh, couple more questions i want to ask you um sure. None of them are too serious. Uh, I'll typically ask my guests, are there any uh, widgets, tools, new products 
Now, obviously, as as a manufacturer, there's new products of yours, but anything else out there that you've been enamored with recently that you're like, hey, this is really cool? Yeah, so I'm like a diehard computer nerd, right? Because, I mean, I do automation stuff, which means I spend a lot of my time in software. So I'm, I, I tend to bend heavily towards the computer side of the world. And, I mean, most recently I've been enamored with the new Magic Keyboard for the iPad Pro. I'm a huge fanboy of the iPad because I, I love, like, hand drawing and sketching on that thing because mm-hmm. I do an awful lot of that in my day-to-day work of trying to figure things out. Um, and the new magic keyboard is awesome. Like it is a fantastic, anyone who is also a computer nerd and is a fan of like the surface platform from Microsoft. If you've, if you like the iPad, but you hate the keyboard options for it, it's an awesome solution, um, for that. See, you just did a good sales job for Apple because now I'm going to go out and buy a new <laughs> iPad so I can get the new keyboard. <laughs> ah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks. Man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we gotta, the, we... I guess the other thing that I've been enamored with recently, I've got over Christmas, I got kind of hooked on photography. I've never been much of a to- photographer and I'm not, still not much of a photographer, but I'm, I, I have a a little bit of an eye and I'm a gearhead as well. So photography is like a great, you know, that's a, that's a kind of a oh, yeah. <laughs> firestorm. That, you're like, that's that's how... where I started was that's photography what, yeah, and, exactly. and, and gear. And you're like, I can get this lens. I can get this. <laughs> I can exactly. get this timer. I can get this flash. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh, there's oh so many, all sorts of accessories I can buy for this thing. Um, but I recently got a Fuji X-T3, or X-T30, sorry, X-T30 camera, and, which I really love because it's got like that cool old Fuji retro look to it, but mm-hmm. it's an awesome mirrorless camera. And uh, I've been digging that a ton. Nice. And it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of, I haven't had a hobby in probably 20 years, and it's been a lot of fun, like, going out and taking pictures and doing something that has absolutely nothing to do with my business. And that's been kind of relaxing for a I'm change. kind of, kind of curious about the social change that our current health yeah. crisis is creating where people have time to pick up old hobbies. I, I literally the other day took my, uh, Canon rebel, uh, T5i oh, and, yeah. and was like, I needed. I wanted to use something else for a web camera instead of just my laptop, um, and I was like, "Huh, I wonder if I can use my digital as SLR as a webcam." Well, yeah, you can. And and Canon just released. They some just released that new one, right? To yeah. be able to specifically do that, I'm like, okay, so you know, I'm using a thousand dollar camera and a three thousand <laughs> dollar lens to to do Zoom meetings. But hey, you know, but you the, look the best of anyone oh, on yeah, those Zoom meetings. Yeah. So exactly. I got to use the background to you know make it look better right um i think it's time and 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 we talked about this off air um and i don't know if you're going to have an answer but the last question i'm going to ask you is do you have any good rigor jokes or for you any good automation jokes you know and i have some uh, i did pose the question on our base camp to the rest of the company and none of them are any good but and as automation guys, I, they I'm could afraid. be bad. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> let me give you the 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 best bad one that I got, which is I always like showing people how to tie dragon bolins. It's just the same as a normal bolin, but you drag it on across the grounds. The <laughs> so and as automation guys, I feel like we're a little snotty, so I have no automation jokes, but we have sound guy jokes. And Ooh. my 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 favorite sound guy joke is still why do sound guys only check one two one two one two because on three you lift right yep there's so. there's a second one for that if you haven't heard it which is uh, why can't sound guys count past five oh why is that because the mic's in the other hand. <laughs> Uh, they they can't have too many sound guy jokes. That's fabulous. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I as a scenic guy for many years, you know, you'd you'd be sitting in production meetings, and the some sound guy would be like, 
we would say we're going to build this thing to hide all the speakers, right? Because the scenic designer doesn't want to see the speakers. And they'd always say, well, is that going to be acoustically transparent? And I, oh. my response was always, it'll be kind of acoustically translucent, like a milk plexi <laughs> sort of translucency, but audio speaking. <laughs> I, uh, I was working on a project uh, a few months ago, uh, back October, and a national act was performing on uh, Halloween and the sound company and their their writer had subwoofers at the front edge of the stage. And this was a, a, a wasn't a concert venue, so it was a, a found space to say. And so at the front edge of the stage, they had double stacked subwoofers. And for crowd control, they had bike uh, barrier that they were going to put vinyl covers on for advertising. And the production manager, who was a, an old war horse, that's a polite way of saying that he had <laughs> he spent a lot of time on the roads. Yeah. Lost it. Had a meltdown that almost came to f- a fist fight about Oof. these barriers and that they were going to block the subwoofer from being able to do their job. You know, this, you know, yeah, double yeah. thick piece of vinyl. <laughs> and, uh, a few weeks later, I was with um, the gentleman who works for Meyer Audio and designs Metallica's touring rig, and uh, got to pick his brain about some stuff. Yeah. And I was like, by the way, you know, as as a you know, working for a manufacturer, what do you say about this? And I told him the story, and he looked at me and he goes, "So what's going to happen when you put the crowd in front of those subwoofers? Is, is the <laughs> bass stopping at the front row?" I was like, "Right." There you go. There's the answer. So the it, answer. you know, it's it's you know. yeah, yeah. Audio people, I love yeah. you. I love hanging your stuff. Please give me more Absolutely. work. Absolutely. So it's all out of love. Awesome. Well, I think I think I'm out of questions for now. I'll awesome. always always leave open the opportunity of of return guests. But I want to say thank you very much for uh, taking the time to record this with me. Um, for sure. I certainly learned a lot. I hope our listeners are going to get to learn some stuff. Um, as I've mentioned repeatedly, I think uh, the best part of our industry is being able to learn new things, even if you never use it, but just to have an understanding. And for younger people getting into the business, you may never, you know, you may not do sound ever, but if you understand why they have certain needs or why they want things a certain way, then you can facilitate, you can do your job better for them. So I appreciate the information that and expertise that you bring to the table and have shared with us. Um, well, thanks so much. I really appreciate the invite. It was a lot of fun. I, I enjoy the time. And I hope that when you guys drop this on your podcast, that some of your listeners who may not know that much about rigging have an opportunity to learn something as well. So Definitely. Awesome. Perfect. Well... This was thanks, fun. Ethan. Thank you. Thank you. And for our listeners, thanks for listening again. And until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger. A rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be.